from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I know, I think in the, I think in the Pacific Northwest, there's like no bugs, there's no mosquitoes. Is that true? Yeah. Wow, what a paradise. I know. If you can handle the rain well, and the cold winters, which goes you to show you off. <laughs> there is no such place as paradise. Yeah. It's always a catch. Well, what about um No, I can't think of anywhere. Like, <laughs> well, you know, Southern California, perfect weather, but it's all the earthquakes and the fires fires yeah yeah mm, many fires um what about the bottom of the ocean a lot of pressure <laughs> yeah what? there's one thing i don't need I'm more of in my life <laughs> it's pressure and vampire squids which i don't have any in my life currently and i like that you've vampire never heard of a vampire squid, squid? Well, look them up because they have uh, a little light bulb on a tentacle and they look oh, like yeah. an alien monster from hell. I mean. And I'm sure they're actually really cute or whatever, but <laughs> <laughs> they look very scary because they live in the darkest part of the ocean. So right. they just, you know, they have not evolved at all the same and, well, and <laughs> as anything I'm used to. No mirrors. So and they no can't mirrors. ever take a look at themselves and decide to change. And be like, mm, wow. You know 
I'm starting with the fish in the mirror. I'm telling him to change his face. <laughs> You're terrifying, <laughs> sir. This water couldn't get any clearer. <laughs> I bet it could. Yeah, it definitely. <laughs> but that's like that blobfish that was going around the internet a few yeah. years ago, I feel like. And it looked so gross. And yeah. people were like, oh, it's like so saggy and weird looking. And then, but of course, it's because it doesn't. It doesn't live in this pressure. Right, it, it lives in a much more pressurized environment. Yeah. So if you're actually seeing it where it's from, it's a totally normal looking fish. Uh-huh. It's all put together. <laughs> That's like me in the southern heat. Right. If exactly. you saw me mm-hmm. in, uh, you know, upstate New York in November, mm-hmm. that's when I look my best. It's much like the blobfish. My true form. My true form. It's Rochester <laughs> in the fall. <laughs> We're in our true form today, telling yeah. another yeah. ridiculous romance. That's right. So excited about this episode. Me too. This is one of those ridiculous romance that like gave us a whole lot of insight into a subject we did not otherwise know about, right? and that is the history of Ethiopia. Awesome. I know, right? I love that. That you know, sometimes they, these stories direct us somewhere or. I might not have chosen. Oh, let me let me learn about the history of Ethiopia today. Mm-hmm. But then I had to for this. I'm like, geez. I mean, very Wh- old. What was country. I missing? B- yes. Lots of history. I mean, we've seen on this show a bunch of times in the past that countries across the globe are dealing with the same high stakes, high drama, games of thrones <laughs> that we see so often. We only learn about them in, in Western Europe mostly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it was happening everywhere. And Menelik II is considered to be the founder of modern Ethiopia, and his wife, Empress Taitu Betul, was heavily involved in the country's unification, and she helped win one of the most important battles between an African and a European nation. So, let's learn a little about Ethiopia and hear what's so powerful about this power couple. I'm in. Let's do this. Yeah. Hey there, friends. Come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show, Ridiculous Romance. A production of iHeartRadio. Ethiopia long also known as Abyssinia, is one of the oldest countries in Africa. Tools and spears have been found there dating back almost 300,000 years. And in 1994, archaeologists discovered the fossils of a female Ardipithecus ramidus named Ardi, who is the oldest human ancestor ever found at about 4 million years old. It's really not polite to ask. (laughs) Well, you don't look a day over 3.8 3.8 million, Artie. Oh, you. <laughs> now, the earliest records of Ethiopia pop up in Egypt's Old Kingdom period around 3000 BC. So this is a country with a lot of history. Maybe the most history, oh. right? I mean, we're talking about early predecessors of humans right. left from here. The Ethiopian Orthodox Tawahedo Church is the dominant religion there, and they have been there since the 4th century. Wow. And Europeans didn't even really get involved with Ethiopia until the 1400s. So Christianity came from its original place, not from Western Europe. 
when That's it came into Africa. I, I don't know why, but I always assumed that Christianity was brought to African right. nations by European colonization. Right, I know right. that's true for some, but and a version not of all. it was certainly brought there, right? You know, but yeah, I'm like, but they're closer to Jerusalem than I am. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I thought <laughs> I thought that, but okay. definitely. Now, in the 1600s, Emperor Susneos converted the empire's official religion to Catholicism. Mm. And this caused riots and revolts and assassination attempts. So Susneos changed his mind. He was like, never mind. Yeah, y'all be whatever religion you want. It's cool with me. He's like Homer going into the bushes. Right, right. <laughs> and he set the country's official religion back to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Now, this kicked off a period referred to as the Age of Princes. For almost 100 years, from 1769 until 1855, where emperors became only figureheads, while regional lords kind of held the actual power. Right, right. And during this time, Ethiopia had very little contact with Europe. And that brings us to the point in history where our story today begins. In 1844, the king of Shewa, which was a semi-independent region in northern Ethiopia, knocked up a servant girl. Oops. In August of that year, she gave birth to Menelik. And the king didn't recognize the child as his son because, you know, just a servant girl. Like. Right, right. But the boy still grew up with more or less the royal treatment. Mm. He got a very good education. He had a very privileged upbringing. You're not my son. Mm -hmm. But, you know, here's some nice things. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but no son of mine's going to run around with a servant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> In 1855, the new emperor of Ethiopia, Tewodros II, invaded this kingdom of Shewa, killed the king, and captured young Menelik and took him back to the imperial stronghold. Huh. And even here, though, Menelik was treated really well. The emperor even offered him his daughter to marry. Wow, so, okay. Menelik's just like charming, I guess. People just like <laughs> immediately like, you're all right. Probably meant sense. If the emperor, for any reason, knew... That he was the son of the king. Mm -hmm. He probably was thinking, too, like, well, and if you marry my daughter, then I could lay some claim to this territory. That's true. Because these were all kingdoms that were technically in his empire, mm -hmm. but they all kind of acted autonomously. And a lot of them didn't listen to the emperor that much. Mm, so it was hard. It was tough for him to hold it all together. Yeah, this just reminded me of Lu Buwe because when uh, they had all the different states of China and they were right. kind of all fighting with each other. Yeah, totally. Also would imprison royal kids in in palaces, so they were kind of like the prison. Uh, yeah. They were like mink lined cells, I guess. Right, you could say. right. So yeah, that was kind of happening here. You know, Menelik was a prisoner, but he was also treated kind of like a son by the emperor. He was his education continued. He was given a very royal life. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of privileges. And then Emperor Tewodros put a new governor in charge of Shewa. It was a non royal guy named Bezebe. But as soon as Bezebe got there. He rebelled against the emperor and named himself the king of Shewa. Wow. The emperor's like, here, I'm giving you this land and you can govern it uh -huh. for me. Like, mm -hmm. you just go and act my rule over there. Right. I'll tell you what to do and you do it. Yeah. And the king says, oh, yeah, sure. I'll take it. Thanks. Let me just get over there real quick. And he gets there, gets in his little palace and is like, aha, nah, -uh, I'm king of this place. Mm. Emperor, you can go screw up. <gasps> these hoes ain't loyal. <laughs> <laughs> See, Emperor had all these Shewan royals that he had imprisoned in the same stronghold where Menelik was living. Now, as long as a member of their own royal family was ruling over Shewa, 
they were pretty chill. They didn't cause much of a fuss. They're mm-hmm. like, sure, I'm living here in this like palace prison, but at least one of my boys is in charge back home. Okay. But once this usurper Bezaba came in and declared himself king, they got pissed. There's like, no, he's not one of ours, mm-hmm. Emperor. What do you right. mean you put him in charge? The Emperor's Ugh. like, look. I didn't name him king. He did that on his own. He's doing his own thing. They didn't care. Mm -hmm. They got really mad. And from within the stronghold, they helped Menelik escape. They're like, you're of the proper bloodline. So you go back home. You be king of Shewa. Mm -hmm. So Menelik escaped the stronghold. He left his wife, the emperor's daughter, behind. And he returned to Shewa to reclaim his ancestral crown. The emperor heard about this and got so pissed that he slaughtered 29 hostages and had 12 Shewan nobles beaten to death with bamboo. Damn. Yeah, this guy overreacts. For real? He's having a full temper tantrum. Yes. And in Shewa, Menelik basically took control with no trouble. Hmm. Bezeba tried to raise an army to defend himself and, and the crown that he claimed for himself, but even his own soldiers defected uh, in favor of this guy who showed up and who was legitimately a prince. So Menelik easily snatched up the crown and afterwards also made it clear that he had a pretty strong claim to the imperial throne through his bloodline. Okay, okay. But he did not make any attempt to take the throne. In Harold Marcus's book, The Life and Times of Menelik II, he says that the king was, quote, emotionally incapable of helping to destroy the man who had treated him as a son. Oh, damn, that's tough. That's nice. Yeah. Usually they don't seem, a lot of times they don't seem to have a problem with that in royal Uh, families. They're just like, kill my dad, kill my brother, whoever it takes. Menelik, uh, we'll see, is a sentimental guy. Yeah, he seems like a sweetie pie. Meanwhile, Emperor Tewodros, our drama queen, sent out letters to a bunch of European nations asking for help to fight off expanding Muslim powers that were at Ethiopia's door. Mm. You know, he's like, hey, you're Christian, I'm Christian, let's fight these Muslims together. Right. And France kind of like half responded, like they were like, eh. But nobody else responded at all. So Tewodros decided to capture a few Englishmen and hold them hostage in order to get Queen Victoria's attention. (laughs) Well, it got her attention, all right. (laughs) I bet. And in 1867, she announced that she was sending in a huge military contingent to go in and rescue the hostages and slap around the Ethiopians a little while they were at it. Mm. There were 13,000 British and Indian soldiers, 26,000 camp followers, and over 40,000 animals, including elephants. They set sail from Bombay aboard 280 ships, and they called this the British Expedition to Abyssinia. Which sounds like such a parade, like just a nice little (laughs) festival we're going to have, Mm -hmm. when it was like meant to subjugate an entire country, you know? A jaunty holiday to colonize an African country. Exactly. Now, it would have actually been quite difficult for the British because nobody had invaded Ethiopia in hundreds of years. Mm. The terrain was super unfamiliar, and the Ethiopians were a strong and ancient civilization. But Tawodros, you know, he was not holding all these kingdoms together, and he didn't have a lot of friends left. A few princes even pledged aid to the British. So the British faced very little resistance in their march to the Imperial Fortress. Tawodros had alienated and attacked allies. He got angry and slaughtered people who just committed like minor offenses against him. And then he sent thousands of his own soldiers, many of them only armed with spears, 
to charge against the British forces. They were met with cannon fire, rockets, and artillery. And nearly 800 Ethiopians were killed with many more wounded, while only two British soldiers died. So they literally brought a knife to a gunfight. Yeah, yeah. Rather than face captivity, Tawodros committed suicide using a pistol that had been given to him as a gift by Queen Victoria. The British forces looted and burned the fortress, including its churches, and it took 15 elephants and 200 mules to carry all the historical and religious artifacts that they stole back to their ships to take back to England. Yikes. But I'm going to ask you a little trivia question here, Diana. Sure. Where do you think we can find these Ethiopian artifacts today? tough one. Uh, I'm gonna guess that they're still at the British Museum. Hey, you're right! What do you know? Still at the British Museum today. Yes, there is an article in The Atlantic from 2019 that says there are actually 11 wood and stone tablets in a storeroom of the British Museum that represent the Ark of the Covenant. And according to the Ethiopian Orthodox Church, only its priests should ever be able to see them. That's how sacred these objects are. The Brits even brought along on their holiday expedition (laughs) an expert from the British Museum whose whole job was to just appraise and bid on items that they could take back with them from Ethiopia. Which I guess bidding is nice. Maybe they bought some of them. No, no, they bought them from each other. Oh, it was like he was he was a rep from the British Museum to say, I'll buy these from the army that took them. Oh, OK. They had like individual soldiers would bid to buy items. Mm. The museum bought whatever. They were just like, well, we're taking this now. Let's all sell it to each other. It's crazy that they brought an appraiser with them because they knew right. they were going to take home a bunch of like shit. Most, yeah, they were like par- part of the reason we're going yeah. is to pick up some stuff. Absolutely. Just like any holiday, you uh-huh. like to do a bit of shopping. So for the last 150 years, Ethiopia has repeatedly asked for this stuff back Uh because it is their stuff. And it was taken wrongly. (laughs) Maybe they should get it back. But as of the 2019 article, the British Museum's best offer was, quote, it would consider the possibility of a long-term loan. Oh, Bitch, you're the one with the long-term loan. <laughs> and I'm calling it. Give me my yes. shit back. Loan over. Give me Ugh. my shit back. Insane. And the thing is, the British Museum has these tablets, and they're honoring the fact that no one else is allowed to look at them besides Ethiopian Orthodox priests by keeping them in a storeroom under the museum. Okay. And Ethiopia's like, then why the hell are you keeping them? Exactly. What's the point? Just give them back. And now no one can see them, so you're technically still infringing on their religious freedom because their priests can't look at their fucking Ark of the Covenant. It's crazy. That's crazy. It's wild that England is still clutching to this stuff. Right. After all this time. And I'm like, part of me is like, I would not necessarily want every country of origin stuff to go back to that country. And stay there, right. Because the whole point is that, you know, not everyone gets to go to Ethiopia in their life. Sure. But this way they get to see some cultural items and stuff like that. Yep. But okay, buy, buy them. Buy, buy them. them or, or ask for some stuff from them that they would like to give. Let or those <laughs> countries take their own shit and put it into a touring exhibition. 
True. And then they can make the money off of it, too. I mean, yes, exactly. Who are we enriching? And yeah. Okay. All right. Enough shitting on the British Museum. I'm sure (laughs) we'll get many more opportunities (laughs) in next episode. But we want to get to this romance. So after Tawodros' suicide, Menelik was pretty broken up. Because remember, this is a guy who like raised him like a son. And he was like, even though you're crazy, I can't can't fight you. Yeah. But he publicly threw a big celebration. According to Harold Marcus's book, when Menelik was asked why he did this, he said, quote, to satisfy the passions of the people. As for me, I should have gone into a forest to weep. I have now lost the one who educated me and toward whom I had sincere affection. That's tough. That is tough. That's tough. And I could see it if he was really unpopular. It was like, cool, he died, everyone's happy. Even yeah. though I'm not happy, we right. should, we should, I should right. enter into My personal feelings, feelings right. uh, do not necessarily reflect my, my subjects, my mm-hmm. kingdom, you know. Yeah. yeah. Now, after Tuodros' death, one of Menelik's rivals took the imperial crown as Emperor Johannes IV. And Menelik didn't really make too much of a fuss about it at this time. He was busy being a great king. He was also busy getting married two more times. One marriage didn't go so well, and the other would change Ethiopia forever. And we will hear about those right after this commercial break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is she breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name is Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. 
In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready. To, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome back to the show, everybody. So Johannes IV is emperor of Ethiopia, and Menelik is the king of Shewa, which is, you know, again, a northern kingdom in Ethiopia, semi-independent. But he needed a queen. Of course, Menelik had had to leave his first wife, Altash Tawodros, the daughter of the previous emperor, when he escaped captivity. We don't really know what kind of relationship they had, but I, I like to assume maybe it was strained. You know, yeah. a, a complicated union, mm -hmm. probably. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that he just had, like, I'm escaping. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye, Felicia. Uh-huh. They had no children together, and he did officially divorce her in 1865 when he had plans to marry another woman. She was a noble named Bafena Wolde Mikael. And Menelik was so fond of her. He really fell in love with this woman. She was beautiful and smart and strong. But she didn't really think much of him at all. Damn. Yeah, she apparently had a bunch of kids from previous marriages, and she only agreed to marry Menelik basically as a means of keeping them well cared for. Oh, uh, so she was like, I don't really like you, but you are the king. Yeah. So you'll keep my kids right. nice and they'll be in <laughs> they'll be in soft. And she was from a noble background, so she probably oh. had ambitions for her family herself, you know. Okay, sure. And she did start to take that a little too far, and she was widely suspected of making secret plans with Emperor Johannes IV to replace Menelik with one of her own sons. Ice cold! Yeah. Now, Bafena got found out, and Menelik's advisors had to separate them. Once again, mm -hmm. someone he really cared for ended up being his enemy. And his friends and his relatives would try to introduce him to new wives, but he said to them, quote, you ask me to look at these women with the same eyes that once gazed upon Bafena? And they're like, yeah, bro, she sucked. It's like, come on. She's, I mean, you know, they, they list that quote and say it was really a testament to not only how much in love he was with her, uh, how great he thought she was, but how beautiful he thought mm -hmm. that she was, too. Yeah. Like, my eyes can't handle looking yeah. at anybody less than her. Yeah, they all look like shit in comparison. Right, right. <laughs> But in 1882, after 17 years of marriage, Menelik divorced Bafena. And again, not a ton of info, but he was probably 
pretty bummed. Yeah. I mean, again, he was like really into infatuated with his wife. Uh-huh. Um, so probably a lot of moping around the palace. Right. For Menelik. He's listening to The Cure. <laughs> <laughs> Eating ice cream by the pint. He's worn the same t-shirt five oh days God. in a row. Menelik. <laughs> You got to get back it's out really there, dark. man. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, come in and rip open the curtains. Right. They're like, like listen, king, <laughs> get out of it. Get out here. His like stoner friend comes up. He's like, hey, man, you know what? We're going dancing tonight. <laughs> We're going out. You're going to find some no, honeys. I'm not going to. Yeah, man. Pick it up. We're going. All right. But I'm not going to have any fun. I promise. Mm-hmm. Cut to him at the club. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm single. Ready to mingle. <laughs> but at some point, he did meet Taitu. Taitu Betul was born probably in 1851 to an aristocratic family. Her father was a Raz, which is sort of like a duke or a prince, and they had like a ruling foothold in the north. And her great grandfather, Raz Gibri of Simeon, ruled during the Age of Princes and was remembered for having treated his subjects so well and providing them with enough food and water that they didn't actually have to farm to feed themselves. They could farm fully commercially just to make money. Can you imagine? Incredible. Yeah. Uh, He's not coming from a scarcity mindset. Right, right, (laughs) You might say. A ruler providing his subjects with enough food and water they don't have to pay for and then they prosper? Insane, and so does the kingdom. That's so weird. <laughs> Who'd have thunk? Now, Taitu was also descended from Emperor Susnius, the guy who never minded Catholicism, if you right. remember. <laughs> he tried it, and then was like, oops. When her father died at the Battle of Aishal, her mother married an administrator of a monastery, which is where it's believed Taitu got her education, which was pretty unusual for Ethiopian women in her time. Right. She could read and write multiple languages. She wrote poetry. She loved centerej, which is an Ethiopian variant of chess. And she played the begena, which is like a tall stringed instrument. It kind of looks like a big harp or a lyre or something. So very accomplished. I, I've got to say, though, it was probably it was I think from other stories we've told, it was unusual at the time for women of many cultures to get exactly. educated. Yeah. Right. Um, I, who is it? Um, Inez de la Cruz. Mm-hmm. Right. That's she right. she was educated in a monastery, which was the only way women could get educated at the time. That's true. And what's funny is that Inez de Castro was in medieval times. So right. This is 1850. Yeah. Yeah. Which if you do compare to other episodes. I mean, in America, many women are being educated, but they still couldn't go to colleges. So it was like, they wanted you to know how to read and stuff, but like, don't go too far and start thinking you're as smart as everybody else. Or remember uh, Clementine Churchill, who like could learn, but they didn't want her to, especially not maths, which was a subject for men only. I know. You don't want to be a blue stocking, darling. (laughs) There's nothing men hate more than a bookish lady. (laughs) Well, Taitu was first married off at the age of 10 to an officer of Emperor Tuodros II. And Encyclopedia.com says, quote, sex was considered normal for Ethiopians of Taitu's age at the time. So that's a bit of uncomfortable history. That's extremely young. Yes. But I will say the age of consent in Ethiopia today is 18. Right, right. So no need to write any letters. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Now, while marriages were fairly patriarchal, 
It was also, quote, not unusual for Ethiopian women to marry several times or to take several lovers when they were older. Hmm. Now, her first marriage didn't go so well, uh, not just because she was 10, I imagine, mm-hmm. but because Tuodros, who, remember, had a real problem with overreacting, <laughs> he arrested and chained up her husband for some some minor offense that he did. Wow. And Taitu was chained at the wrist and forced to follow along behind the army on foot and cook for the soldiers at their camp. Now, their marriage eventually ended, and Taitu was then wed to the brother of a consort of Minelik up in Shewa. So she's like getting closer to him. She's mm-hmm. in she's mm-hmm. in his sphere right now. Yeah. But this guy was an abusive dick and he beat her. So Ugh. Taitu, who's considerably older by now, she's you know in her like early 20s. She gets beaten by this guy and the next day she says, "Um, you know what? I'm going to go visit with my mother back home for a little while in a neighboring mm-hmm. kingdom. Understandable. And when she left, quote, a great deal of her abusive husband's property, <laughs> as well as many of his servants, went with her. Uh, <laughs> She's oh just like, my God. Uh, yeah, let me pack a bag real quick. I'm going to go. And then she loads up, you know, a hundred, 200 mules. <laughs> with like a procession of all the uh-huh. servants. And then he comes home to just a Empty, empty house. house. He's like, where is everybody? Where's my bed? <laughs> it looks like the Grinch was there. There's yes. just like a couple of wires on she the wall. She up the rug with all the gifts. <laughs> <laughs> she reaches back, takes the last crumb. <laughs> uh, I won't leave you Amazing. a crumb. I love that. <laughs> yes. She divorced his ass and she didn't even bother trying to get a settlement out of the divorce because she'd already taken so much of his shit. <laughs> She's like, what you got left? Nothing. <laughs> Taitu, we learned, was not to be trifled with. No, ma'am. Uh-uh. Now, Taitu married two more times. And it became clear over the course of these marriages that she was unable to bear children. Mm. Some sources say this is due to the genital mutilation she was subjected to as a baby, Mm. which is unfortunately still pretty common practice in many countries in Africa. Regardless, she was very beautiful. She was incredibly smart. She's quick-witted. And as historian Haywan Seaman says, quote, There was a prophecy that she heard as a young girl that said she would be the next empress of Ethiopia. And that guided her Mm. in like all the decisions she made in her life. She was like, I'm supposed to be the empress. Yeah, I wonder if I would have been a more ambitious person if someone had come up to me as a child and said, you're destined for greatness. Right? Maybe just we should all go to hospitals, go to the baby room and just tell them all (laughs) and just see what happens. Actually, you know what? I just realized maybe it's all my own fault. I've long blamed as as a as a teenager mm-hmm. some of my teachers and stuff and directors in theater. Oh sure. They would tell me, "Oh, you're going to be famous one day." And I think I took that as a reason to not work very hard. Oh sure. You know, I was they like, "Oh, well they, everyone says I don't even I, I don't even have to try." Damn. And uh look look where that got us. They do talk a lot about like gifted kids or whatever who are oh, now yeah. very anxious and that perfectionist and can't get anything done because yep. they're afraid of doing it wrong and yep. stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep. I, I was in the gifted it. program for I a while. I see it. Yeah. I feel like if you did tell 
a generation of children that they were all destined for greatness, it would <laughs> it would turn out pretty chaotic. Look, like some people would be awesome, like <laughs> hero types. Right. Others would take it a very different direction. <laughs> Only one of you gets to be emperor. <laughs> so fight amongst yourselves. Right. <laughs> So, but she did hear this cool prophecy about herself, and she's like, okay, great. Well, I guess I need to do everything I can do yeah. to make that come she, true. She took it better than I did. <laughs> yeah, right? She was, she was like, gotta work. <laughs> gotta hustle. Right. So, anyway, being this hot and rich badass with her eyes on the prize probably caught the attention of King Menelik of Shewa. And some historians think it was love at first sight because Ooh. Menelik, as we've seen, is attracted to powerful women. He right. like he likes the uh, he doesn't want a dumbass mm -hmm. next to him. He wants her to be good looking and smart. But even if it wasn't a love connection right away, um, it was still a smart move because Menelik was trying to consolidate his power subtly, you know, without bringing too much attention from Emperor Johannes the Fourth. Right. So marrying into Taitu's powerful family would give him a real edge. Yeah. And they started courting in 1883. And though he was merely king of Shewa at that time, he told her about his big plans. Yeah, because Menelik claimed a paternal lineage that could be traced all the way back to King Solomon and the Queen of Sheba. Mm. Like Old Testament shit. Sure. Now, according to the Kebre Negast, which is an old text where Ethiopia derives much of its tradition and law, Ethiopia must be ruled by someone of that lineage. Mm. So Menelik staked his claim to the imperial throne, and he told Taitu about this. You know, he's like, hey, let's get together. I know you're cool. You got a lot of power. And guess what? I'm going to be emperor one day. I'm the, I'm the guy who should be. I was going to say, do you think she was like, well, I don't want to be uh, just a queen. I'm right. looking to be empress. Yeah, and there was a whole empress. prophecy about me. And yeah. he's like, oh, actually, it's so funny you say that. <laughs> Turns out uh -huh. my dad's 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 dad. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's probably exactly more or less what happened. Mm. And on Easter Sunday of 1883, they were married. Raymond Jonas writes in his book, The Battle of Adwa, that Menelik and Taitu were actually very affectionate with each other. Um, so we can we can imagine that there was some real love and romance here, and it wasn't all political. I like to hear that for both of them. Yeah, it feels like they deserve a break in the love, <laughs> right? <laughs> love realm. There are some candid photos of their personal lives that show how comfortable they are together. They would eat meals together, which wasn't necessarily common. And quote, their interactions were described as attentive and tender. And like you said, both of them had some really ugly divorces behind them, so they must have really considered this union carefully. But through this marriage and some other careful alliances, Menelik turned Shewa into the most powerful kingdom in Ethiopia. He also buddied up with the Italians and the French, and they were really keen on having an ally down in this region to help stop British expansion. <laughs> right. So they he's like, playing the Europeans against each other, too. Very smart. Yeah. They were like, oh, they already took a bunch of stuff we wanted. Oh, yeah. <laughs> then in March of 1889, Emperor Johannes IV was killed in a battle. Ooh. It's said that with his dying breath, he declared that his son would be heir to the throne. That sounds convenient. <laughs> <laughs> well, Menelik and Taitu heard about this, and they were like, ooh, okay, the time is now to yes. strike. And Menelik stepped up and proclaimed himself Emperor of Ethiopia. And some people were like, 
wait a minute, but Johannes was just here and uh-huh. he just said it would be his he was son. Like, his son? So I thought this was going to be his now. son. <laughs> and Menelik was like, mm, I know that's very confusing, but let me lay it out for y'all. Johannes was a descendant from King Solomon. Sure, great, but it was through the female side. Boo! My bloodline is through the male lineage, so it counts for more. Wow. And he had enough of the nobility on his side, in addition to the backing of the Italians, that in November of that year, he was crowned emperor. Johannes's son didn't really have his shit together. He couldn't contest it. He didn't have no friends <laughs> right, with any right. Italians or anything like that. <laughs> So Menelik gave him a governorship as like a consolation prize. Right. So Emperor Menelik II and Empress Taitu were now ruling all of Ethiopia. And we'll hear about their remarkable, sometimes ridiculous exploits right after this. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and... uh... Officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. 
Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Welcome back, everyone. Now, Menelik II is generally considered to be the founder of modern Ethiopia, like we said at the top of the episode. There had been so many wars going on, and the country was so split into these many little regions that had, you know, pretty much little to do with each other besides this idea of an emperor who ruled them. Right. But they were kind of self-governing. So Menelik's very first mission was to modernize and unite the empire. But he couldn't have done anything any of this without Taitu at his side. She made sure to get herself involved in all matters of policy, and Menelik was very glad to have her assistance. Because while Menelik was fairly, he was kind of approachable and amenable, rejectedprincesses.com calls Taitu, quote, the bad cop empress of Ethiopia. (laughs) So they had this kind of like a go-ask-your-mother sort of thing going (laughs) on there, this routine that (sighs) helped them kind of pacify a lot of conflict and and get shit done. Hmm. When he had to take an unpopular stance, Menelik had a catchphrase where he basically said, yes, tomorrow. So somebody's (laughs) like, hey, should we raise taxes? Yeah, 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 we'll talk about that tomorrow. Right. You know, uh, should we do this and that? Uh, Yeah, we'll talk about it tomorrow, tomorrow. Come back and ask me again. Today's crazy. Uh You don't get it. But Taitu had no problem with her catchphrase, Absolutely not. (laughs) And she was involved in all of his political moves, and she would interrupt negotiations, quote, often in a decisive and resolutely hostile way. I could totally see this working. Oh, yeah. I mean, his strength is that he makes friends, right? right? People right. like him. Yes. Throughout his life, that's been everything that's helped him is that people like him. But then if you can't really lead and stay likable because you have to say no a lot. You get walked all over, yeah. So he's like, great, you say no. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And she's like, cool, I don't mind being unlikable. I will say no. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Menelik was still getting some on the side. Mm -hmm. He had his little side pieces going on. Right. And Taitu tolerated it, but she kept a sharp eye on things. (laughs) And she would not tolerate it if a woman looked like they were vying for power. They thought, you know, they could compete with her. Right. You could sleep with that girl. Mm -hmm. But the second I see her eyeball on that throne. Okay. She is out. (laughs) She's out. She's far out. Like, Uh we'll kick her ass to the other border. (laughs) Uh She's probably like, why don't you date that bimbo? Mm, Why don't you date some dummies? And I'd be fine with me. She's like, you'll get so bored listening to her chatter. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't have to worry about you disappearing for life. Right. It's said that one of these ladies started maybe asking a few too many questions Uh-oh. or making some suggestions that were a little too suggestive. Mm-hmm. And Taitu poisoned her. Oh. In my. fact, Taitu was rumored to be connected to quite a few poisonings dating back to her teenage years. Right. Even. 
But RejectedPrincesses.com says that a lot of these claims are probably rumor-mongering. They're not backed up by evidence, um, which we've seen many times in the past with queens getting mm-hmm. getting sm- smeared and dragged, you know. But a couple of them, quote, aren't out of the question. <laughs> so Taitu probably did not poison a lot of people, but she, she might have poisoned a few. <laughs> not against it. <laughs> But she did start to curb Menelik's womanizing, and this helped him be a more focused and serious ruler. There was a popular song at the time that said, quote, the sun has dissipated the fog. Mm. Now, Taitu is gayez for sun, and the fog clearly meant these foggy-ass bitches that Menelik <laughs> is running around with. So people were pretty happy that she reined him in a bit right. when it came to that. But to unite the empire and bring all these kingdoms together, Menelik needed to establish a new capital city. Because for a long time, there wasn't a permanent capital. The emperor's royal encampment was basically like a capital that just moved around wherever it needed to be. I could see that being useful in like battle. You just keep moving, retreating the capital away. (laughs) And he'd been parked for a while on Mount Entoto. But in 1886, Empress Taitu took a little trip south of the mountain to one of these hot springs while Menelik was out fighting off a little battle or something. And she gets there and she's like, yeah, this is it. Mm -hmm. And she built a little house for herself. And she said, I'm going to be here from now on. (laughs) If anybody's looking for me, this is where I live now. I found paradise. Very nice spot. And she called it Addis Ababa, which means new flower. So Menelik gets word of this. He sends his generals down there to start allocating land and building their own houses. And in 1889, they started building the royal palace. Over the next 20 years, the city grew to a population of over 100,000. And it is still Ethiopia's capital city today. Right now, it's the eighth wealthiest city in Africa. And it's home to the oldest university in Africa, as well as the HQ for the African Union. And it's just, we were looking it up, and it is just full of diversity and food that looks incredible and museums and architecture. It just sounds amazing. Now I really want to go. It's on the list for sure. Absolutely. It looks amazing. I'm ready. If any of you live in Ethiopia and would like to provide Uh, us a couch. (laughs) Absolutely. Together, Menelik and Taitu continued to bring Ethiopia into the modern era. Previous emperors, Johannes IV and Tawodros II, had both outlawed slave trading, but they had had a hard time suppressing it because a lot of the disparate tribes were not against it, so they didn't really enforce any of that. Mm. Raiders came into the country from all sides to capture people. But as Menelik's reach expanded out into these tribal kingdoms, either through military conquest or diplomatic agreements, Mm -hmm. he was able to actively suppress the slave trade. He had slave markets across Ethiopia destroyed, and he enforced serious punishments for anyone caught working in that industry. In addition to founding Addis Ababa, Taitu helped homeless orphans by educating them to become deacons, priests, or even government officials. Wow, can you imagine a ruler coming in and being like, hey, homeless folks, I'm going to educate you and make you government officials. I mean, what a world. Why would you want a lot of homeless people? Right. I I have to ask that, (laughs) even in our country. That's the big question, yeah. And then what a great perspective to be working in government. Yeah. Boy, I don't want people to have to go through what I went through. Let me try and make that not happen. 
Well, and I wonder, too, since she was able to get an education Uh and knew that that was kind of a privilege, she was like, seriously, this is transformational. You will not be the same once you've opened your eyes in this way. I'm thinking about these people and they they both, you know, obviously came from privileged households, Mm -hmm. but they were also both imprisoned at different times. I'm thinking of her, you know, being forced to walk behind the army in chains and forced to cook for them and stuff and him being locked up in this palace and like, you know, pretty much forced to marry the emperor's daughter and, you know, and and give up all of his lineage and everything. And they just have like a really unique perspective as rulers. Uh, Taitu also built the first hotel, the Ategwe Taitu Hotel, which still stands today. And that's yep. where I'd like to stay yeah. if we can afford it uh, when it we go to Ethiopia. I don't know anything about the hotel itself. But I know. Maybe it's like a Best Western. I don't it know. Could be, yeah. <laughs> but maybe it's like a fucking 4C, you know, fancy. <laughs> right. Now, Menelik spoke fluent French, Italian, and English and started to get involved in global investments. Very smart. Smart, smart. He heavily invested in American railroads. And according to a New York Times article from 1909, he had a private fortune of around $25 million, which today, let me check here, would be over $800 million. Dang, Menelik. That's pretty good. Can I get, can I hold 50? I know. (laughs) You won't even notice it. Yeah. Spit in the ocean. Now, he was constantly reading books from all over the world, and he had a library in his palace of 10,000 volumes. Oh, can you imagine? Hot. <laughs> right. I'm picturing you totally just um, as Belle on the ladder, uh, like, rolling through those bookshelves, singing. That's why I always, I always related to her so hard, because it was just like, <laughs> wait, you just want me to hang out in a soft bed surrounded by books with, like, <laughs> things that talk to me and, like, I get delicious food? I don't know why I should be upset right now. Yeah, you can see why the Stockholm Syndrome sent it set, uh, set in, in for her, yeah. Pretty fast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it said that uh, when asked about a new upcoming author in England or something like a, a European author who was new and fresh and hot, you could go ask him about it and he already knew who they were. He was real up to date. Dang, okay. Yeah. He was like a liter- literature subscriber. Yes. He was like, oh yeah. He wanted it all. He clearly valued knowledge and right. intelligence. You know, it served really him well. Things. Yeah. So yeah, amazing library. He built modern roads expanding out from the capital. He introduced the first modern postal system. And through his relations with the French, he introduced electricity, telephones, cars, and modern plumbing. And more and more Westerners were looking to Ethiopia as a trade hub. Mm -hmm. So he really like elevated this whole country in the eyes of the globe, not just in the, the, uh, the continent. Definitely, yeah. Now, Taitu was instrumental in this work. She was a shrewd strategist, and she was a real force in negotiations. Remember, she would interrupt them hostily sometimes. I like resolutely hostile. (laughs) (laughs) Historians mostly agree that she was, quote, seen as Menelik's equal and often took a tougher stance on matters than her husband, according to an article on DW.com. She also really, 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 really did not trust Europeans. Aw, but why? <laughs> We're so cool to y'all, though. European colonization was expanding rapidly across Africa, and Italy, who had only unified as a single country in the 1860s, so very recently, mm-hmm. they felt like they were falling behind the other European countries in terms of colonization across the globe. Mm-hmm. But they 
found this port city in Eritrea, and by the late 1880s, they had expanded through Eritrea and Somalia, which border the entirety of eastern Ethiopia. Mm. And it did cut off Ethiopia's coastal access. Mm, okay. So the Italians came to Emperor Menelik II, and they said, hey, oh, we want to colonize Ethiopia. <laughs> and Menelik replied, no. <laughs> And the Italians were like, okay, fair enough. We had to ask, you know. Oh, no. Oh, Waluigi, how did you get here? (laughs) So they said, how about this nice treaty? Mm -hmm. And they brought him the Treaty of Wuchale in 1869, also known as the Italo-Ethiopian Treaty of Friendship and Commerce. Oh, what a nice little name. I like that. The treaty contained 20 articles, and they wrote two copies, one in the Ethiopian language of Amharic and one in Italian. Mm. Everything sounded great. Emperor Menelik II signed the treaty, presumably with Taitu <laughs> behind him, with her arms crossed, frowning, looking very disapproving and untrusting. Total side eye. <laughs> uh-huh. But the Italians took their treaty, and they went home. Great. That's probably what she wanted. She's like, great, they left. That's all I care about. <laughs> Except there was one teeny tiny little difference between the two translations of this treaty. Mm-hmm. The Amharic version of Article 17 said the emperor of Ethiopia could go check with Italy before he had any dealings with other foreign powers. Okay. But the Italian version said the emperor must go check with Italy first. What? So you see why the lawyers are always so serious about Uh their definitions and stuff, because these tiny little things make a big difference. Oh, seriously. And now when the Italians got home, they're like, hey, great news. Ethiopia is an Italian protectorate, and they won't do anything without our say-so. Ciao. Wow. And Menelik, you know, and Taitu were like, what are y'all talking about? (laughs) Yeah. They heard about this. They were obviously like, hell no. If y'all are not even going to keep up the treaty that we thought we signed, and then we don't have to keep it up either. And it's said that Taitu took the contract and tore it to pieces. Yes. Which I love. I hope she threw it in the air and danced around. (laughs) Now, negotiators came back from Italy, and they tried to be like, okay, that was just a little mistranslation, but that's what you agreed to. Uh You signed it right here. Sucks to be you, but whatever. Yep. And during deliberations, Taitu, obviously, very indignant. She wanted the Italians to pack up and leave Ethiopian territories altogether, 100%, get out away from the borders. Mm -hmm. And according to historian Anchi Ho, the lead Italian negotiator, Count Pietro Antonelli, said, quote, Menelik is playing games on me by giving up his regal authority to a woman. To which Empress Taitu said, quote, My womanliness and your manliness is going to be tested on the battlefield. Do not absent yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So Taitu was like, threw down a gauntlet. She was like, I'm ready to fight you here and now. (laughs) Anytime (laughs) you say when. And so unsurprisingly, negotiations failed. And Menelik was wavering on what to do next. But Taitu kept telling him, you know what you have to do next. We're going to war with the Italians. Mm -hmm. There's only one thing to do here. Right. And finally, she got through to him, and Menelik declared war. 
Now, the Italians thought this was so cute. Europeans were victorious over African armies for centuries, so they just thought their win was like in the bag, basically a given, don't even have to worry about it. And in January of 1896, Menelik and Taitu together attacked an Italian fort at Adigrat, and that did not go well for the Ethiopians. Italians slaughtered 500 Ethiopian soldiers easily, and they barely suffered any casualties themselves. And Menelik here, I, I feel like, is probably thinking about Tawodros mm-hmm. and his really bad loss against the British oh, during yeah. that expedition to Abyssinia when the, he sent all those soldiers out against that heavily armed British force. But Taitu had a plan. Now, she had her own private army of about 5,000 soldiers, including 100 women. Now, she took 900 of her people and they snuck around the ravine where the fort was situated and they cut off the stream that was supplying water to the fort. Oops. The Italians were not good at the local geography. Their maps were outdated. They had no idea what to do. And the Ethiopians just backed up, settled in, out of firing range, and waited. Amazing. And after 10 days, the Italians stumbled out of this fort, totally dehydrated and sick, and they surrendered. Yeah, that's home field advantage right exactly. there. Exactly. She's like, they don't know shit about this place. Uh-huh. Let's use that against them. Welcome that's to my smart. house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Welcome to my house. Uh-huh. And now the Italians basically thought, okay, you got lucky. All right. right. We didn't right. know about the water. Sue us. <laughs> 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 this time we'll Mama send... Mia. <laughs> Mama Mia. <laughs> now, but this time we'll send some serious firepower to Ethiopia to deal with these locals. So they sent 17,000 men to march through Ethiopia towards the capital city of Addis Ababa. They knew this would put a stop to these uncivilized Ethiopians once and for all. But on their march to Addis Ababa, they were intercepted by Menelik, Taitu, and their forces in the mountains near the town of Adwa. And the Battle of Adwa would prove to be one of the most significant in African history. Italian General Baratieri had been marching south from Eritrea, but his 17,000 men were again unprepared for the Ethiopian terrain. They were already low on water, munitions, and morale. Then he saw the Ethiopian forces. Now, Menelik had, for years, led the Italians to believe that Ethiopia was just a disparate collection of disorganized tribes without any modern weaponry. But he had united most of the kingdoms, and this war with Italy did more for that than anything. Baratieri looked up and saw Menelik's army of over a hundred thousand soldiers. And while half of them were armed with spears and swords and shields, the other half had modern rifles. What, what, what? Menelik had been making deals with the Russians, who were also Orthodox Christian, and they didn't want Catholic European expansion in Africa. So they came to a good arrangement, and they had been supplying Menelik with weapons for years. There he goes again, finding allies in the most strange places. I love that. Meanwhile, Taitu gathered up 10,000 women and had them fill water jugs to supply the Ethiopian troops and tend to the wounded, which is, of course, something the Italians didn't know where to get or even think ahead to do. Baratieri wanted to retreat, but the Italian prime minister, Crispy, ordered them to attack. (laughs) But they were like, oh, 
You're about to have a crispy ass <laughs> as I burn you out of <laughs> office. Crispy motherfucker. This crispy bitch. <laughs> <laughs> now, when the fighting began, Taitu rushed in with her 5,000 soldiers, shouting, quote, Courage! Victory is ours! Strike! And Encyclopedia.com says, quote, Cannoneers to the right of where she stood fired so continuously that they broke the center of the enemy army. And the Italians tried to split into three contingents, gain the high ground, and flank the Ethiopians. But again, they had outdated maps. Oh, no. And they were not only completely separated from each other, but they were way more out in the open than they thought they would be. And they were easily spotted by Ethiopian scouts. Wow. So Menelik's massive army decimated all three contingents. By the afternoon, the battle was over. The Ethiopians had lost between 10 and 15 percent of their men. The Italians had lost nearly 60%. Wow. When news got back to Italy, there were riots in the streets protesting Prime Minister Crispy's handling of the war. That's yeah. what it is, those crispy bitch signs. <laughs> <laughs> and they had to make peace with the Ethiopians. So soon they were back at the table signing the Treaty of Addis Ababa, in which Italy recognized Ethiopia's Complete independence. Damn. And I bet Taitu read that shit a couple times. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Italy was humiliated across the world, and Europe had to think twice about their arrogance in fighting African forces. That's right. Again, they're just using everything they, all the tools available. You know, uh-huh. he's like, y'all are so racist, and you think you're so condescending yeah. about us. You yeah. think we got nothing I guess I'll use that instead of trying to persuade you. I'll just one day prove it to you. Uh (laughs) Now, Count Pietro Antonelli, you remember him? He was the negotiator who was talking shit about Taitu after the Treaty of Wuchale, who said, you know, oh, I I can't believe Emperor (laughs) Menelik is listening to a woman. She said, I'll see you on the battlefield. Well, he did absent himself from the battlefield, of course. Wow. And after this, he changed his tune a bit. Now he said, quote, Uh, The empress, like all other Ethiopian women, is brave. She has a strong character, sometimes haughty, and is interesting in appearance. Her look is commanding and at the same time has finesse. In sum, she is a great lady who, perhaps in another milieu, would have been a Christina of Sweden or a Catherine the Great. Hmm. But RejectedPrincesses.com points out this is European code for, quote, if she wasn't black, uh, you know, pretty obvious, pretty obvious there. I liked uh, her appearance is interesting. Right. Right. Oh, if she were white, she might be like she Catherine be the Great. Pretty. I'm like, she is she like, is like Catherine, Catherine the, the Great. <laughs> now, Europeans got pretty aggressive with their racism about Taitu, too, after this, saying she was a brutal murderer who bathed in virgin's blood and tried to slaughter prisoners who'd surrendered. They even said that she was the cause of the war herself because they believed Menelik would have capitulated and compromised if it weren't for her bloodthirsty hatred of Europeans. Now, Encyclopedia.com says, quote, no one outside of Ethiopia seemed to recognize Taitu simply as a patriot fighting for the freedom of her people. I mean, how many times do you see that, right? Right. It's like everyone has their own little version of how a conflict goes. Yeah. And who the oppressor is and who the patriots are. Right. Just kind of depends which side you're on. Exactly. I think it's pretty clear if you look objectively (laughs) in this case. 
Now, Butaitu was a bit divisive, even at home. Sure. But in 1906, Menelik suffered a stroke. And although he recovered, he was weakened, and Taitu increasingly assumed his powers. Mm -hmm. She was known to be merciful and progressive. And she, quote, applied herself to not only feminine works, but like Quicksilver, attended to perplexing business, usually done by men, and succeeded at it. Which is oh, surely mind-blowing <laughs> to the author of that piece. Clearly. Like, <laughs> wow, she can also do this? And thing. she succeeded? Oh. My God! <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to think anymore. I better write this down. Dogs and cats living together. Women succeeding in business. <laughs> what is happening to the world? Oh, <laughs> this modern era. <laughs> <laughs> but she was pretty ruthless as a political ruler, too. Unsurprising, given yeah. what we've heard about her uh-huh, already. Uh-huh. And as her power expanded, it was said that, quote, nearly half of Ethiopia is in the hands of her relatives. Oops. So... The people got a little upset about her nepotism. Right, you know, right, they're like, right. why is it always a betul <laughs> running around? In 1909, Menelik had a second stroke and died shortly after. A council of regency, from which the empress was excluded, was formed in 1910, and they ruled over Ethiopia until 1916 when Empress Zuditu was crowned. Mm. Now, Taitu was effectively forced out of politics during this council of regency. So she moved to like live out her days in a nearby palace. She died in 1917. Yeah, and Menelik and Taitu are still celebrated in Ethiopia today. They're buried next to each other in a monastery in Addis Ababa, and they're remembered as modernizers and patriots who fought for their people and brought prosperity to Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And in Italy... There's a common expression when someone is being bold and demanding that things go their way. Ci se crede di essere la regina Taitu, which translates to, who does she think she is? Empress Taitu? <laughs> <laughs> which I love. Oh, that's awesome. I'm gonna st- I saw a woman in one of the comments on one of these articles saying, oh, my grandmother is Italian. She used to say that to me all the time. Like, who do you think you are? Empress Taitu? <laughs> Amazing. I'm going to start using that around here. That is good. That is, yeah. Next time I say some some unreasonable demand. Yeah. Like, hey, babe, can I get some water while you're up? Who do you think you are? Empress Taitu? No. I'd be like, if you were Empress Taitu, you'd be cutting off the water. That's so true. I wouldn't have any. I, I'd have 10,000 women carrying it around. Right? You'd be like... Uh, you're part Italian, sir. You're not getting any water. That's what you'd say to <laughs> I've me. I've never been a strategic thinker, all right? I would never <laughs> presume to be Empress Taitu. Right. But that no, is she's... so smart. Cut off the water and then just wait him out. Oh, she was a thinker. She was that. so smart. Mm. Yeah. These That's people are a, a so cool. A little bit reminded me of Olga of Kiev when she would, she would just fuck with their, oh, their right? plate. So she didn't even go in there right. until like, she had already decimated uh-huh. so many of them. I love that. Cut, the image of them cutting off the water and then go standing out of range mm-hmm. and just waiting mm-hmm. and just watching them. Like, oh, another day goes by. Boy, they sure they sure do look a little a little so frustrated right now. Hot you know. enough for you? <laughs> <laughs> they're like, yeah, they're out there like, uh, you know, just pouring water oh, out yeah, of jugs like and taking a bath head. in front of them. <laughs> Oh, it's so no- Oh, I think I'll go for a swim. Mm. Or doing that mean thing where you're like, hold it and then just pour it on the ground because uh-huh, uh-huh. you don't need it. Right. It's Whatever. like an ice cold glass of lemonade. <clears throat> She's like, wouldn't you? No. 
oh, there's a bug in it, dump. <laughs> Honestly, what's probably worse is that they went and set up a little fire and then boiled pasta right in front of them. <laughs> they were like, it's perfectly al dente. <laughs> How does it feel? Oh, no. No, <laughs> not, not to the pasta. Waluigi's so upset. Waluigi. <laughs> and that's the story of when Empress Taitu defeated Waluigi. <laughs> I bet she could, too. You know, she easily. played Mario, Mario Party easily. Easily. <laughs> I will say that uh, the game Civilization, I want to say Civilization 4 or 5, some gamer will correct me, but they added Ethiopia as a nation and Emperor Minelek is your character. Oh, that's If you play cool. that, yeah. Yeah. And there's a bunch of history in the game. About them that's too. cool. I'm yeah. glad we've retained them in pop culture somewhere. Oh, definitely. They're awesome. And it's, uh, you know, we kind of rushed through the end. Mm-hmm. I'll say that... All of the modernizing and the roads and the churches they built and the government systems they set up and everything like that. A lot of that happened after the war with Italy. Right. Um, you know, there was there was a solid eight or nine years there after the war where they were just mm-hmm. prospering and did yeah. really well. And then when by the time he died and she got forced out, it, you know, it's politics. It wasn't anything too exciting or dramatic or anything. Um, but they were, you know, well thought of and well remembered mm. uh, to this day. You think Taitu was tired or she just was like, whatever, Menelik's dead, so I'll just go relax now. I wonder. Twilight years or yeah, something. I wonder. It was probably because, I mean, she, you know, she lived well into her 60s. Yeah. My only question would be because she doesn't strike me as the type who would just let a council right. form around her or, right. and totally exclude her. Uh-huh. So I was like, did she have a problem with that or was she kind of like, eh, fine. <laughs> right. Yeah. I've had my fun. <laughs> <laughs> I could crush you all right now, mm-hmm. but. I'm going to step aside. (laughs) But I think she needed him. I think they needed each other to be that balance, you know, because I think if if she's got that really harsh attitude of like, I don't take no shit and I'm not negotiating with you, you know, that only gets you so far. Very true. And Menelik's attitude of like, I don't want to make anybody mad. We'll, We'll work this out. That only gets you so far. So together, yeah. And why why they're such a fascinating couple to me? Yeah. Uh, that's really what made them so strong. Do you think, like the Italians, that he would have compromised if, without Taitu? Hard to say. I think he would have said tomorrow a lot. I think he really would have <laughs> would love put that it story off a lot. To be honest, <laughs> <laughs> they just kept being like, "Okay, I guess we'll send him another message but tomorrow." I don't. Ah, man, you know, I'm not a, a, a historian of right. these people, so it's hard for me to really make a judgment call on what he might have done. Mm-hmm. From what little I know. It feels like I don't know. He, he might, might have not have point. been quite as pushy. He might have, he might have tried to negotiate a different deal. Maybe so. And she was so bold, like she yeah. was willing to go with a fight, and she did have to coax him into it. Yeah. So I imagine he, but he just didn't have a better idea. But either. he might have been pushed into it eventually anyway, yeah. because he did care about mm-hmm. his power and and about Ethiopian independence. He wanted this United Kingdom. So I I think that at some point there there still would have been a war. Okay. Because I remember also he was still negotiating and doing deals with the Russians for all mm-hmm. those weapons. He was trying to like keep it on the DL that he was building such a powerful nation. And did and keep did. it on the DL pretty good. Yeah. So hard to He's say. Like a king with a lot of friends is a very dangerous yep. man. Yep. But then, you know, you butterfly affect it and you're like, well, if you'd taken her out, would he even have gotten to this point right. where he was emperor? Mm-hmm. Um, hard to say that as well. 
They really they really worked well with each other. Yeah, They're definitely a, hell a good of a power, power couple. couple. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah, this is awesome. What a great story. Yes. I'm so glad that and we got to I'm learn it. So ready to go to Ethiopia. <laughs> Please. Oh my god. We we haven't even really dug into Ethiopian food here. There's a There's Ethiopian restaurant ones. nearby we've got to go try out. I've yeah. had it once or twice and it's delicious. Yeah. I've I've not had Ethiopian food since high school, so oh, yeah? I I need to definitely try it again. I let's was do not it. very adventurous oh, eater. Oh man, let's go right now. Okay. I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> Desta Ethiopian, here we come. Right? We'll go in. We'll be like, uh Yes, uh, we'll talk to the server and be like, well, have you heard of Empress Tai Tu? <laughs> and they'll be like, oh, tonight's meal's on the house. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was going to say it's probably some hipster and no. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe not. Hopefully they're like, yeah, I heard about it on this episode of Ridiculous Romance. <gasps> wow, cool. How? <laughs> we just <laughs> recorded it. <laughs> I'm a time traveler. <laughs> I have wow. eyes in you <laughs> on everything you do. Wow. The server's turning into quite a I creepy know. character. I think we should leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I hope you all enjoyed this story as much as I did learning it. Yeah. Um, super interesting, fascinating, awesome people. Yes. Yes. Very cool. Yeah. But yeah, let us know what you thought. We always love hearing from you mm-hmm. and getting your suggestions and all anything you have to say. So yeah, reach out. We are ridicromance at gmail.com. Right. Or find us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at oh great. It's Eli. I'm at Diana Might Boom. And the show is at Ridic Romance. Yeah. And don't forget to drop us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so yes. that other people can hear about how great we are. Super helpful. We love that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we love all of you, and we will catch you all at the next episode. Thanks for being here. Bye. Bye-bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. 
MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay. And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.